Welcome to Who Wrote That Up For You, a daily podcast that shines a light on the American justice system and its role in empowering the powerful to take from you. The justice system is the only branch of your government where an individual, rather than the collective, can make the system act for you. It puts power in the individual's hands, but it's broken and being used against you at a time when you need it most. And welcome to Who Wrote That Up For You. I am Sonia Ebron, co-founder at Courtroom 5. And I am Deborah Sloan, the other co-founder at Courtroom 5. Great show lined up for you today. In a few moments, we will speak with Diego Acosta. Uh, he is a court interpreter uh, operating in the Houston, Texas area. So we'll be excited to learn about the services uh, he provides there. Before we get started, Deborah, what is on your mind today? I want to talk about the uh, difficulty of uh, right now of um, if you're a plaintiff winning a defamation case. Right now, the uh, Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court is considering lowering the standards for um, proving your defamation case if you're a claimant in favor of basically uh, getting rid of the, the current standard, which has been there for almost 60 years. The current standard is if you're going to accuse someone of um, a defamation, there are a couple of things you have to prove. And one of the biggest is actual malice or falsely uh, claiming something that something that you know is false or reckless disregard for the truth. And uh, basically, most of these defamation cases are against uh, media outlets like uh, the New York Times or, or whatever. Uh, as a public librarian, I like, uh, or as a former public librarian, I like holding up the First Amendment. And I think lowering the standards or weakening the standards that people have to prove to prove um, defamation it would be a, a detriment to free to free speech. Primarily, they want to do this for public figures. Uh, well-known uh, public figures who are um, who are accused uh, or who are accusing uh, folk like the New York Times. Uh, an example is Sarah Palin, uh, her her uh, defamation suit against the New York Times. And uh, for me, I, I don't think that those standards should be uh, reduced because of uh, basically because of who you are, or, or because I I feel very strongly in the First Amendment. So. That's where that's where I am on that one. It is getting uh, tougher, uh, it seems to me, across a, a wide variety of claims to uh, to prove your your, your claims uh, these days. Courts are becoming more difficult for people to access, whether you're a, a defendant or a plaintiff. And I think that's um, yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I, I think that's uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, so hopefully the Supreme Court is in favor of the First Amendment and votes <laughs> to uphold it and maintain the current standards there. So appreciate you bringing that to our attention. At Courtroom 5, we believe the courts belong to the people, in particular to the people who use them. And we the people are coming to claim our courts. Uh, so if you are in court without a lawyer or you need to sue someone and can't find a lawyer to represent you, get yourself over to courtroom5.com. Try a limited version of our services for free, and we hope to provide some relief for you there. 
At this time, it's my pleasure uh, to welcome onto the show Diego Acosta. Uh, Diego, again, is a court interpreter uh, in the Houston, Texas area. Diego, thank you for joining us on Who Wrote That Up For You. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being with you today and uh, share a little bit of an experience of what it is to be a court interpreter, especially uh, for the uh, Spanish uh, language, which is my target language. Um, so again, once again, thanks for having me and it's a pleasure. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, let me ask you, um, just, uh, you know, share with our audience what a court interpreter does. So a court interpreter, uh, what we do specifically in my field uh, of expertise is we are experts in language, right? Uh, English and Spanish. And what we do is we help people who have a language barrier who are in the need of accessing a fair trial or a, a fair judicial system, as that's a way to say it. Um, we help them get over that barrier and be able to communicate and say what they need to say uh, without having uh, the worry of not being able to present um, their case or the statements uh, because of this language barrier that we spoke. Fantastic. And so if I am a Spanish speaker and I have limited facility, let's say, with English, um, our courts require that there be some English only spoken. Is that correct? That is correct. Once we go on the record, um, everything has to be in Spanish, right? I'm sure for, for the benefit of everybody. Normally, what we call we call the people who uh, English is not their native language or they don't feel comfortable in English. We use the um, uh, the acronym LEPP, which means Limited English Proficiency Person. This is a person who needs who needs an interpreter. And again, you know, we we are there to facilitate that for them, uh, make sure that everything is interpreted for them. And by interpreting, sometimes people might, might get it confused. It's translation, right? Basically, that's what it is. Difference between translation and interpretation is translation happens on a written document and interpretation happens through voice, right? Through words. So that's what we do. We do interpreting. We, we translate as well, but our, our line of work is interpreting. And we make sure that we explain that to them and give them information on how it works. That way they know how to use it because that, that could also be a challenge, right? If they don't know how to use the interpreter, it could pose a challenge for the person, the interpreter, and the court. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so if I have, as you say, limited English proficiency, is that something the court has to recognize or do I have to prove that? How would I get you into my courtroom, you know, if I needed interpretation? That, that, that is a great question. Normally, what happens is uh, th this is something that is set from before. But at times, um, there, there can be settings where the person feels that they are proficient enough in English to handle or take up on their case in English. And when they get to court and they start hearing everything that's going on and the judge can tell that they're not understanding or the mediator can tell that they're not understanding. So they will have a competency here and they will determine if the person is competent to proceed in English or in Spanish. Normally, people know if they're proficient enough to proceed in English. And again, there's no shame in the game, right? Asking for an interpreter is, is probably your best bet because if you have your doubts and hesitancies of how you're understanding the proceedings, more than likely better off 
getting an interpreter or having the court get an interpreter that way there's no nothing is being left out understood so i'd want to probably handle that as the um as the limited english proficiency person i'd want that handled before i got to court would be my guess are there forms to fill out or do you know if if there's a way of getting me designated, I, I, I would want you, if I had a court hearing and I couldn't speak English well, I'd want you there when I got there, right? Rather than having to rely on the judge or other folks to say, hey, this, this fellow isn't working, isn't speaking very well, right? Yes, yes. Um, normally, you know, it, it, it's all uh, a due process, right? Uh, normally, they're been through some sort of screening, whether it's when they were detained or they're doing uh, written statements or written declarations. And they they ask the person, hey, you know, think you need an interpreter? Is it not? Then normally the court administrator uh, handles that if they need to to reach out to somebody. Remember, there's not only Spanish. Spanish is the biggest or the second largest, most spoken language in the U.S., uh, but after that, there are many other languages. Another language that is very big is Vietnamese and Arabic, right? And 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 these are these are languages where you can't get by with speaking poquito español, right? These are languages where some, sometimes there is no understanding between the people, especially here in Texas, where most of the people here speak Spanish. Even the people who are non from Hispanic families, a lot of the people here speak Spanish just because it's a very big Spanish-speaking community here in, 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 in the area. So normally, a lot of the courts here in my area will have their own interpreters in the court. So in case somebody, you know, there's something comes up, they didn't say that one of the witnesses would prefer Spanish, and now they're saying that they prefer Spanish, they normally have somebody in-house in the courtroom uh, that is available to help them out. Got it. Got it. Fantastic. And so you mentioned that your specialty is in Spanish. Um, is there a licensing procedure there in Texas uh, for court interpreters? And if so, what's that like? There sure is. There sure is. Um, the entity that uh, handles the um, the certifications is called uh, the JBCC, and they are responsible for uh, cert- certifying interpreters, court reporters, I believe it's the judicial branch of county courts or something like that. County My guess. Yeah. It's the Texas entity that, that, that certifies it. So the process uh, can be a little difficult um, just because the tests are, are not easy. Um, I remember studying quite a bit to be able to, to pass the test. Obviously experience is, you know, like in any other setting, experience um, is the most helpful. Having that hands-on experience, right? So while I was preparing for the test, I was also having hearings during the day for my regular work. So that that helped me out a lot. Being in Houston, you have to travel out to Austin. I'm guessing that it's it's the same for um, other states that you have to travel wherever the, uh, the judicial branch has their uh, their main office. Uh, we went into the uh, the, the ju- judicial library right next to the Texas State Capitol. Very, very pretty. And you take the test. It's done in two parts. The first part is uh, an oral examination where they evaluate uh, your understanding of the court and the court settings and um, due procedure, that kind of thing. Uh, only in English. First, you're only tested in English, tested for synonyms, 
uh, idioms, that kind of thing, things that you use in court every day. And then you go um, into the technical part of the examination where they examine uh, your language proficiency. Um, so that, that's how you go about it. Uh, and then once you've taken the test, you get certified and you get put into a database where uh, people who need the interpreter can reach out to you that way. And I think that is um, the easiest way that they have of reaching out to the interpreter. Understood. Fantastic. Now, you have to not only demonstrate in that testing uh, Spanish proficiency and English proficiency, do you have to show any legal uh, legal terminology uh, proficiency? Do you have to understand certain terms? Of course. Of course. A lot of the studying goes through terminology because uh, it, it's something you have to be very careful. Um, English and Spanish, uh, for a person who speaks both languages, are very similar. They're very different, but they have a lot of things that are similar, um, especially when you work, for example, in the medical field. A lot of the diseases and uh, parts of the body, and they're, they're very similar to, to English, but for the legal, it changes. You know, some of the things are, 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 are very different and you have to be very careful the way that you say it. For example, um, when we use the word crime in English, crime could be anything from jaywalking on the street. But in the Spanish, if you use the equivalent to crime, which is crimen, which is only one word, uh, one letter difference. You're just adding in towards the end of the word. Um, it means something more serious. Normally, when you when you when you say crime or crimen in in, in, in Spanish, it, it refers or alludes to something as you know like murder or something like that, right? So it, it we we use a different word when we're talking about small crimes, right? Which has not it's not a literal translation for the word crime because we use delito like delictive, right? We use delito. And it, it makes a difference. So these certain little things, uh, you know, you have to know. Um, but more so of the legal terminology, I feel like one of the most important parts that they test you in and that you have to know to put into experience is knowing these, uh, these regional colloquialisms and, and um, those, these in almost intertwined words that because it, one place it can mean something else, somewhere else it can mean something different. So being able to take in the context and 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 giving the words a meaning, um, I think that that's where the test becomes very hard because they try to be very very nitpicky at seeing if you can understand context and given that rendering that message similarly to where it's going to reflect the same way in the other language. Got it. Fantastic. So I know you probably find yourself interpreting across a wide variety of, of types of uh, legal matters. So criminal cases, variety of civil cases. Are there different types of interpretation services that might apply in one type of legal matter or another? There is. There is. And normally, uh, the interpreters, uh, we are prepared to to work in any kind of setting. A lot of the times, we don't know what we're going for. Um, so we kind of show up and we are required to go with the flow. But 
a lot of the interpreters get to choose uh, what they like. And that's one of the beauties of, of being in this line of work is you can kind of choose what you like. I personally enjoy immigration. Uh, it's ever changing. They, the people are the people who you work with are trained to work with interpreters. So it makes your job easier. Fantastic. It's a really interesting field for me because, again, the courts are English only. And so the only thing that gets reported, if you will, like by a court reporter, would be what you say, not what the the the, the person, the, the limited uh, English proficiency person says. And so you do have to get those uh, idiosyncrasies absolutely right, because it's what you say that goes on the record. So would you talk to us about the process? I show up in court and you as the interpreter show up. What is the how what are the mechanics there? How do you get connected? Is there equipment? What does it look like? Very interesting that you point that out. That 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 is one of the things that um I, I am very, very careful when I when I do my work is, is being making sure that I am picking the correct translation for what I'm saying. Like you said, again, we say is what goes on records. In many occasions, I've been in a courtroom where I know that sometimes I've, I've used a synonym very similar to what the person has said. And the judge or whoever is speaking is, uses the same terminology that I used when they could have chosen using another terminology meaning exactly what you say, right? They are they are using and, and listening to exactly what we're saying. Um, so you have to be really, really careful with that. That being said, different courtrooms have different procedures. For example, with immigration court, they have their own equipment. Um, the equipment normally consists of a microphone with a receiver, I'm sorry, with a transmitter, and which is what the interpreter wears, kind of something similar to what I'm wearing, um, only without without the auricular part because we don't we don't need to hear right our our ears need to hear to whatever the English people are saying so we only have a little device with a microphone and then the other person does have the headset and they're listening in real time what is being said so as as they start speaking the translation starts going and simultaneously just a couple of words behind what they're saying but there are certain courtrooms that don't have their own equipment some of us interpreters have our own equipment and it makes a world of a difference to put matters into perspective. For example, if there is no equipment, sometimes the court wants to proceed in a consecutive manner. I don't know if we have talked about this, but the consecutive is it once person, the consecutive interpretation consists once the person has rendered the message that they want to transmit, the interpreter waits for them to finish the message in their language. And then we take in the message and we translate it after, right? That be, that's being consecutive, one message after the other. Opposed to when you have the device, you could do it simultaneously, which is what I was saying before. You have headset, you have, you know, and they're listening um, to what you're saying. So that being said, the consecutive could take, if we're taking 30 minutes to take testimony, consecutive takes an hour because you're repeating over and over and over again. So having your equipment helps. Uh, if there is no equipment, there are other ways to go around it. Uh, there is an old French technique called charcutage where we sit next to the person who needs the interpretation and we basically whisper uh, in their ear uh, simultaneously what they're saying. That way, you know, that they're listening in real time what's going on and you could shave some of that, that 
extra time that you would be in, you know, doing a consecutive interpretation. Good, good, good. And, and so we know, for instance, a court reporter, you only need one in a, in a hearing or, or a trial. Are there instances where more than one uh, limited English proficiency uh, person is in the court needing to speak? And in those situations, are there more than one uh, interpreters or would you be the only interpreter interpreting or translating for everyone? That is an excellent question. Normally, and, and again, with the core reporters, it's one, but with the interpreters, well, I'll, I get a lot some context. Normally, we, what we do is we're doing consecutive. We're doing a lot of retaining the message, right? Or simultaneous, we're doing a lot of quick, instant thinking and processing through our head. However, it's been known through studies that your attention span and your memory starts declining after an hour of continuous, extenuous work, right? If you're putting your brain to work for a period over an hour, quality of the interpretation starts diminishing. It's been proven by studies. So normally what we do is we work in teams. So we'll work with two people. And what we do is we'll relay each other, right? One person will be up on there for 45 minutes, and then we'll switch every 45. If I see that my colleague is getting stuck, you know, uh, you know, it could be anything. Sometimes, you know, we're thinking about what we have to go do after work, or you know, and and, and that could, could slow you down, right? If you don't have your attention span completely into what you're doing, and it happens, it, it does happen, right? This is it's like any other job, you know opposed to the person sitting on the bench or saying, you know, this is not, not your livelihood. It's there to work, right? It's just another day in the office, right? So it does happen. And then you kind of try to pick up on those cues. And if you see that your colleague needs to help you kind of butt in and, hey, my turn. And then, you know, you give yourself kind of that rest, but it, it's better and it's best. The interpretation holds a better quality when you work in teams. Yes. Absolutely. But when you're in the seat uh, and there are multiple people who need translation, are you translating for both of them? Or does your partner or one of your colleagues handle one person and you handle another? So normally what, what happens is the equipment you have, most of the time you have enough equipment for everybody, right? So you'll have maybe somebody in the jury that needs the interpretation. They get, they get equipment. Maybe you have, you know, one of the witnesses needs equipment and the defendant needs equipment. So you provide everybody with the equipment and normally uh, everybody's listening. Got it. Got it. Okay. So um, have you ever had had a person who was limited um, English proficiency, but maybe thought they had enough to listen to you and maybe correct you? No, that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. Uh, have you ever had that situation? <laughs> that situation does happen a lot. But surprisingly, and I say that sarcastically, it's normally it's not the defendant. Guess who? The attorney, right? Um, the attorney wants to throw the interpreter under the bus because maybe they're not getting the answers that they're expecting. For the most part, they just are objecting and they'll object to the interpretation because they don't like the way that their defendant responded to whatever he was asked. But that's not the interpreter's fault. There are occasions where they'll object, you know, and again, this is Texas, so a lot of them do speak the language. And sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't make sense 
that they are challenging your, your interpretation because sometimes you're using certain synonyms. Because at times, you know, when you're working, 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 and one word doesn't come up, you have to switch it out for another word. And maybe they're just not hearing the word that they wanted to hear because they want to follow up a line of questions along with that answer and they wanted certain specifically said. So they do. Uh, for the most part, we have a protocol. We stand by interpretation or if we believe that maybe there was a mistake or a misunderstanding, again, it does happen. We are human. We correct it, you know, and we address the defendant. We let the judge know, judge, I'm going to clarify with the defendant what possibly could be the, the misunderstanding here and, you know, see what's going on. So I clarify with them and I tell the judge exactly what was said. Um, the judges, we go through the judge forever. Judge here, judge there, right? Judge, can we tell this to the defendant? Judge, I'm going to tell this to the defendant, right? So you ask the judge, judge, you know, I'm going to ask them, you tell them, hey, I need to clarify, you know, what was said or what, you know, what wasn't said. And then you tell the Judge, I clarified what was said, what wasn't said. The defendant responded this exactly, and, and, and that's where we're at. And normally, as interpreters, our work is to make sure that the message is delivered correctly, that way it's being understood. So normally, as interpreters and, and the person who's using the interpreter mistakes, makes the mistake that the party has to understand what you're asking in order for you to feel or to think that you're doing a good job, but that's not necessarily correct because at times you'll get, you'll ask the question exactly how it was asked and the person will answer what they want to answer, whether it's they're wanting, they don't want to answer directly to the question that they're being asked or they understood the question in a different way and they're answering in a, in a different matter. That being said, um, being very careful with what you say, um, is always very important thinking about it, whether sometimes it's difficult to stop and think for a moment, because uh, once you get into a flow and you kind of hesitate for a second, you make everybody hesitate, right? Did he say that right? Did he ask that correctly, right? Sometimes our hesitancy is more of making sure that we're being completely accurate or we're not leaving anything out or adding something that may change the answer. That is a hard job. That is, it. but it's so important uh, for someone to get a fair hearing uh, or a trial. Are there etiquette issues that people needing interpretation services um, should follow? What should you expect? Which, what would I expect uh, to have to do if I needed uh, your services in, in a court hearing? Well, normally a lot of the people, they've never worked with interpreters before. Some of them have whether they've been in immigration procedures or they've been to medical appointments where they need interpreters, which is mainly the places where, where the interpreters work, they would know a bit of how to, to work with the interpreter. But normally what I try to do is I try to explain to them before. Hi, my name is Diego and I'm an employee here with the court and I am a translator. I don't use the word interpreter because I don't want to confuse them at times. Right. Or I'll be, I am the interpreter or in other words, I am the translator. We are going to be using this device here. This is how you turn on the volume. This is how you lower it. Kind of give them a little crash test course of how to use the interpreter. Normally it's not an issue when the person doesn't pick up at all on the other language. It becomes an issue sometimes when they know a little bit of both languages and they're trying to understand both things at the same time and they might get a little confused. Right. So you tell them. 
you would rather Spanish, right? Let's keep it in Spanish. Let me do my work, make my job easy. Same thing with the other party, right? As, as not only the defendant, but the other party as well. You kind of have to instruct them, hey, it, it's human nature. If you give me a one paragraph statement that you want me to interpret word for word, do you think I am going to be more accurate if you give me the paragraph all at once or if you give me the paragraph sentence by sentence? Right? Right. You sentence know, by sentence. Yeah. Sentence by sentence, you're going to keep almost the exact position at 100%. Whether paragraph, they're going to, my brain automatically, whether I take notes, it's going to summarize at parts or I'm going to use a different word. So again, we tell them that. And then the etiquette goes inside and outside of the court, right? We don't, for example, um, I don't I don't get into arguments with anybody. We were talking about uh, the lawyers. You know, I've been in situations where the lawyer's like, hey, no, that's not what my client said. And I'm not going to sit there and argue with them. I tell the judge, judge, this is what was said. I stand by my interpretation. If there's some sort of disagreement, you can go back to the recording. And, and if, you know, if there's a mistake on my end, you own the mistake and, and you correct it on the record. The interpreter needs to make a correction and you correct your error on the record. Again, a lot of the times, you know, I've had people when we step out of court, um, I'm going to the restroom on my break and they follow me into the bathroom because they want to ask me what's going to happen next or what do you know, what do I think the judge is going to say or what should I Right? Obviously, these are big no-nos for us, right? And it can be difficult, right? Especially if it's somebody, Spanish is a well-spoken language, but like some, some colleagues, you know, speak languages that are very native to certain areas. And when these people hear somebody speaking their language, I mean, their eyes just, they like, oh my God, somebody. And then they hear that accent that they're maybe from the same region that they're from, right? I mean, they feel compelled, obviously, to go speak to the person, right? But, but as interpreters, we, we need to limit that, right? Because at times, we do have a lot of knowledge of how the court procedure works. And conversation can lead up into something that could be misunderstood for, you know, trying to prep the client or trying to coach them or giving them legal advice and try to keep away from that because uh, that could end up in, in a disqualification from the court. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what you do is, is very difficult. Uh, it sounds like to me and, but very, very valuable. So glad to know that people have, uh, services like this court is intimidating enough for folks who do speak English well. And so I can, I can only imagine the comfort you provide, uh, for those who don't. Diego, thank you so much for the work you do and for sharing your knowledge here on who wrote that up for you. Of Wish course. you continued success, uh, in your, in your career. We'll be in touch soon. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Um, I'm available. Uh, if you guys need anything else, interpretation services as well. <laughs> so, Appreciate your work. You guys right, have a good you. day. And thank you for having me once again. Wow, oh, that's so fascinating. That is fantastic. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, that's a hard, hard job. And I can imagine the training that's required to do that uh, on, a, on a regular basis. So fantastic. Well, Deborah, um, who won? Uh, rather, wh what is the uh, solution to your last quiz? And uh, what do you have teed up for us next? Well, it was a, a really easy question. Uh, a motion to eliminate can end your case on the merits. No, it can't. 
Uh, it's false. That is false. Emotion in limine is basically trying to keep certain, a certain uh, evidence out of court uh, pre-trial. So that has nothing to do with the merits of your case, really. Okay, so today's quiz. What does absolute privilege mean in a defamation case? We were just talking about defamation. So what does absolute privilege mean in a defamation case? That is interesting. I think we've run across that issue um, once or twice before. So fantastic. That's good. I'm looking forward to seeing the answer you have there, uh, though, nonetheless. Great. Well, that is all we have for you today. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to Who Wrote That Up For You. And we will see you next time. Are you feeling beleaguered, angry, or afraid? As if things are spinning out of control and you're powerless to stop them? It's easy to just let things slide and hope they don't get worse. But they often do get worse. The thing is, you're not powerless. Our courts belong to us. And their purpose is to give power to the powerless. Don't let your grievances pile up without redressing them. You can handle this in court. Or, if someone takes you to court, you can take them to school.